All right, I am. I have already hit record. I'm good to go. Are you good to go? I've clicked record too. I am good to go. Welcome to another episode of the podcast where we talk about Rust and game development. So, how has your week been? It's been pretty good. I got a decent amount of stuff done in between uh, a lot of uh, playing Diablo 4, which, uh, if you had asked me last week, I didn't have any plans on playing, so that was a surprise. How was your week? It was, uh, well, it was pretty good, all things considered. Um, I did manage to fix the my, my iterator issue. I'll go into details about that shortly. Um, other than that, it has been pretty uh, uneventful. Oh, I've, do, I've been doing a little bit of gaming as well, right? I've been doing a little bit of gaming nice. as well. I will, will confess. Um, so yeah, so 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 tell me, do you do you want to start off? Do you want to go into some details about what you've been working on? Yeah. Um, so I I always get this feeling that I should be working on Bonsai DB when I haven't worked on it for a little bit. Um, and so this past week, um, I was really trying to figure out what's remaining before I release a new update. And one of the things is that it's been a very long time since the last update, and there's a lot of dependencies that needed to get updated. Um, one, I, I did a lot of the ones that were Bonsai specific, but um, the the network layer um, that another person, uh, Dax Peta, wrote for for uh, Bonsai, um, which is kind of just a, a high-level wrapper around uh, the Quinn library that does the Quick protocol. Um, uh, that was two versions old, <laughs> um, and so I needed to update that. Um, and there were some breaking changes uh, that impacted that library, um, and it took a lot of research to figure out, and uh, I ended up getting a PR accepted uh, into the Quinn project to uh, make it easier to reject incoming connections, um, although turns out that you could still do it. It just was kind of hard to understand how you would actually have set that up. So technically, you can do it today without that PR, but still always nice to get nicer, uh, easier to use abstractions for that type of stuff. Um, and the other half of that uh, was days, literally two days of battling futures, uh, specifically trying to get select and select bias to work correctly, because that's how the code originally was written. Um, and <laughs> at the end of the day, I, I hand wrote some futures instead, and everything magically worked perfectly. I still could not figure out why that futures select bias was not working correctly in that one location. But I now have all my unit tests passing as opposed to only half of them with each approach, which was happening before with select biased. Um, so I'm, I'm good now. Uh, do, you, do you think you could describe a little bit briefly what the select bias means? So, yeah. Okay, so there's two things. Select is a way to um, have uh, the multiple futures uh, processed um, simultaneous, and I put that in air quotes because technically it's not actually simultaneous. So your thread can only execute one thing at a time, right? Um, but what it's going to do behind the scenes is execute each future in some order. Um, that's select. Um, and uh, when one of them returns a ready status, aka the future has actually returned a result, um, a certain chunk of code will run through it. Select is a very complicated thing. Um, most most people who work with futures would say, don't use select. You should be just using await. So you can use a bunch of other abstractions to try to combine them. But it's useful in situations where you need to do timeouts um, and you're in a, uh, ag uh, in a situation where you're runtime agnostic, um, which uh, means that you know you're not using Tokyo specifically. Um, and so there's like just edge cases that are harder to deal with there, and you're essentially just waiting for uh, either your your future that signals that there's a timeout or a uh, shutdown to happen, um, or 
or your other future to return. Um, and uh, select bias takes the um, arbitrary order that select does and makes it so that instead of it being arbitrary, it is defined as a top to bottom evaluation order. Um, so the first thing gets evaluated, then the second thing, etc. That's what the bias means, is that uh, the, 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 the first futures at the top will be pulled before the bottom futures will. Um, that is my attempt at summarizing what select and select bias do. Um, I, I highly recommend that if you're looking at them, uh, you try to find different abstractions than that to use um, just because uh, they it's hairy but it sounds like a very good solution to you mentioned this yourself if you want to do a timeout because if you're for mm-hmm. instance waiting for a read of something and and you can say i want to wait but a maximum of 30 seconds then i want to dismiss this thing i haven't what about this i haven't heard a heartbeat from this connection in 30 seconds i want to mm-hmm. i want to disconnect the connection would a select be a good choice there yes and no um, so I would personally go for uh, Tokyo time uh, timeout is a function call that allows you to pass in a duration and a uh, future That's off the top of my head. Um, and you can await that thing and it does it for you without having to figure out how to make select work correctly, worrying about future cancellation, which is the idea of, you know, if, uh, if you say um, food bar and bar is a future, um, it, uh, it may not uh, it, that that future may have state such that if in a loop you call foo.bar over and over and over again, you're never going to actually receive the data you're looking for because that other future contains the state that was you know potentially where the data got written to or something like that you know and uh, because you keep dropping the future during your loop rather than using the same future over and over that becomes an issue. That's the type of thing that can happen with select that when you use a higher level abstraction like Tokyo time timeout, um, you're just not going to be able to subject yourself to programming errors that way because it handles that ugliness for you. I think, I think I'm guilty of using select just for this, which is why I'm asking. I didn't, I don't know why, why I wouldn't use Tokyo time timeout. So you're saying that I can, I can put a future to execute inside a timeout, and if the future hasn't executed, the timeout will execute the, the alternative branch. Is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it actually returns. A, it wraps the result of what the future was in another result. So, you, if it times out, you get a an error on a on, on the outer result type versus what the inner future actually returned. So, um, so you just have to unwrap another layer of error handling, essentially. Is timeout, is that a macro? No, it's actually uh, just a function, but you have to enable a feature. I think it's called the time feature on, uh, on Tokyo for it to be enabled. But again, you might want to use select or select biased in situations where the code isn't 100% sure that it's going to be Tokyo because, you know, uh, you're not always running on Tokyo. <laughs> so um, in which case, you know, there are potentially some other crates that you might be able to use. Um, at the end of the day, I uh, I couldn't use Tokyo's in that particular location, um, or it didn't really make sense per se. Um, and uh, I felt like a hand-rolled future would end up being simpler, and it kind of was, uh, versus trying to understand why the select logic was written that way. 
Um, so I'm, I'm happy with how it is right now. Uh, my biggest, uh, the biggest gotcha with the current implementation is that um, I couldn't quite figure out the pin and unpin semantics around um, some of the features that Quinn um, provides. And so I ended up needing to box a feature that I really don't feel like needed to be boxed. Um, but I also don't feel super comfortable with um, uh, just asserting that something's safe using unsafe um, when it involves the whole unpin situation. So uh, <laughs> that's something that I, I still need to learn more about before I start allowing myself to write uh, unsafe code around there. Um, and I couldn't quite figure out the right uh, way to use the pin project um, um, uh, crate um, to, to, to get the proper access that I wanted. So it was just a long drawn out thing that um, I'll, I'll link the actual uh, pull request that I did for fabric uh, in case people are kind of curious what the end result was. Uh, plus, you know, if you have any ideas on how to get rid of that box future, I'd, I'd love to hear <laughs> Uh, yes, the 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 ever the the ever withstanding curse of having uh, or, or trying to to get rid of of heap allocations, right? So there yeah. is there is that. Okay, that's uh, so. Okay, so that, that what else have you been working on? Um, I also have been tackling the GUI styling thing that I keep talking about every episode. Um, I didn't quite get it done in air quotes the way that I would have wanted to, um, but I made uh, made some good progress. Um, what the there there are multiple challenges of styling a user interface um and uh the 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 challenge that i solved this week was making it so that um styles can be dynamic um so the whole idea with this gui rea uh, reactive reboot that i'm trying um is uh is trying to make things uh kind of automatically happen when you update um, values in your app. Um, so instead of having your view logic have to keep getting reevaluated over and over, like some frameworks, um, instead, uh, your view is instantiated once and then, um, a bunch of, uh, closures, which sounds ugly, but it actually works really nicely, um, uh, are in charge of updating, uh, the little bits and pieces of your UI as your state changes. Um, and one of the challenges that I faced was, um, a style, uh, is a collection of one or more style components like font size, font family, color, background color, etc. Like all those are individual components. You may not have all of them. You may only have part of them. Each widget may um, may honor certain you know components and ignore others. You know, like there's just all sorts of fun complexities. Um, but on top of that, there's usually a way to style the overall app, which is like a style sheet or a theme or something like that. Um, but then there's also a way for pro programmers to like hard code saying this button has font size 18 pixels or whatever, or it's a red button or whatever, which some people don't want to have inline styles ever. They should, you know, they, they think that they should, uh, you know, always have everything in style sheets, which is a, a, a valid approach, but sometimes you just want to set a button's font size. I don't know. Um, and so that's the first problem that I solved uh, this week was focusing on the uh, specified styles at the label slash button slash whatever widget uh, level. Um, I haven't fully implemented those. I only have font size on label, but it's a proof of concept showing how it would work, um, which uh, is kind of cool. Um, so I have a little button that as you click on it, not only only does it increment a counter it also sets the font size to the counter's value and um it's all done by just tying um these kind of values slash signals together uh which means that i'm not actually like manually saying that the 
labels font size should get updated. Instead, I'm setting the counter's value, which is firing logic that is uh, setting the font size based on that counter's new uh, value, which is then dynamically uh, behind the scenes updating the the CSS that the page uses, which is pretty cool. So um, fun challenges. Um, so you said you fixed your iterator problem. Um, so what do you think are your next steps for um, uh, Anathema? I, um, well, I did. So I did fix the iterator problem. And, and this led me to think a little bit about something else. Before I dive into, to, I won't go into any details because this is really very mechanical programming. And, and what I mean is that this is really just wrangling um, indices, right, up and down a tree until the formula is correct for um, moving forward and backwards through these nested trees. It sounds, it sounds very simple, and, and maybe it is, but I managed to make it very difficult in, in, in the way I set this up, right? Um, and this led me to consider the, this, the following, which I am I'm going to ask you, right? I'm going to ask you this because I don't know, right? I, don't, I just don't want to feel alone in this terrible, in this terrible <laughs> setup that I have, right? Um, so misery loves company. So in the vein of that, I want to ask you, do you ever get tunnel vision? So you start fixing a problem that might not even be relevant. Yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. That is that is so nice to hear because it, when I finally fixed this iterator issue and and I and I wrote some tests and I want to talk a little bit about testing in a bit, but I wrote some tests around this and and the tests are passing. It, I, I got it to a point where I could sort of think out various different scenarios that should work. Wrote out the tests and they just worked, and that's a wonderful feeling, right? Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful uh, feeling when that happens. You 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 add test and and you you add test that you don't know if they're gonna pass or not. Right? You don't write the test based on the implementation kind of thing, right? That sounds like a very strange thing to say, right? If you if you if you write one plus one is equal to three and then you write a test to confirm this, you don't really know if if your if your computer is working or not, right? You just know that what you assume to be correct was was correct, right? Um, that was a weird thing to say, but uh, yes. Anyway, so. I, I I wrote some tests and it's working and I, th- I thought, okay, wonderful. Now I can take all this code and go back to the original problem, which was this thing where we can now have a window into uh, a very large collection and we could just render these widgets around there. And as I was sitting down there to implement this thing, I, I just realized that this has been a colossal waste of time because this is never going to work. It's never going to, and I've been through, like, I've been, I've been thinking about various solutions to this thing, right? I've, I've started writing down my solutions, and they all either involve this kind of, uh, I have to look at what widgets are the children of this widget and apply special logic, and, and that doesn't really ring right with me when it comes to this. There shouldn't be special logic. I want this to be, possible to to be very very generic right in in its ways it's a no one thing shouldn't depend on another the the parent of the child just says go and go go and lay yourself out and give me the size and 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 then we'll do the positioning and painting later right as the the as the the approach i've taken right inspired by by flutter and the likes right um but uh, but it's it is it is simply not possible with my current setup no matter how i twist and turn this thing to to do this, right? It is not possible. There is no magical way of um, knowing 
what your item offset should be, the element offset of the list that you're using as your data source without being able to know if you have rendered something that is dependent on that list, right? It sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but I still managed to spend plenty of time being confused about this. So what I wanted wanted to segue into is a little bit of backtracking, right? So backtracking, when you have a problem, sometimes you have to backtrack far. You have to backtrack further than you want to, right? So this kind of comes uh, comes down to a little bit of throwing good money after bad, right? I could I could keep banging my head against this problem and I can keep saying like, okay, I can make uh, a hacky solution that works or I can I can accept that I I cannot make the solution I want to make with this thing. So what I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to to set aside specific days next week when I work on this and then specific days when I'm going to start getting involved maybe a little bit more in what we're supposed to be doing because I've been so close to finishing this for so long that and and then having to backtrack okay we we're going in the wrong direction we're moving away from the goalpost right so I'm I'm going to have to do a little bit of readjustment but that is that is to say I'm I'm just going to try to play catch up with you right so I'm going to I'm going to look at the database a little bit I'm going to look at the the I asked you the other day about the graphics thing because I want to sort of start looking at that a little bit uh, just to sort of I know we're not. I'm not really playing catch up with the, with the game per se, but some of the technologies that we want to use for this thing. So that's that's kind of where I'm where I'm at with this thing. So I've gone from fixing my iterators to realizing that I have to restructure how I approach everything, right? And, and in doing this as well, I would like to take an opportunity to improve the user experience of of this a little bit as well, right? Uh, so so anyway, that was a very long rant. I didn't think I was going to have anything to say today, but I had apparently quite a lot <laughs> to say. Uninterrupted I think that's how it nonsense. It, it it is it is isn't it right? Um. So so yeah. Um. Should should we should we talk a little bit about testing? Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you you were going to bring up some testing. Like, what challenges of testing did you encounter uh, this week while working on that that made you put the note down? It was it was one of my viewers asked me about testing and it's one it's like testing you you write tests for your code right obviously you write tests the yeah. internet is listening we have to say we write tests right so so we write tests uh, but I, you know I, I I will confess that I don't spend too much time thinking about um, how I write and structure and organize my test right now I, I mean I I write some code then I use that code in a test and I verify the output and then I kind of move on that's been sort of my approach. Um, but this, one of my views was asking me about testing in, in such a way that it made me think a little bit about testing a little bit more in depth. How do I actually organize my test? Right. And, and when I looked at some of the tests that I've written and, and I realized that sometimes I write a lot of code, specific test code, um, to make my test very, very short. Right. So, so I'm wondering, right. Do you take this kind of gung ho approach where you just copy and paste the previous test and change a few things? Or, or do you spend time designing your test in this very flourish test designed amazing rainbow? I don't know. Right. But do you, how much, how much effort do you spend in your test? Uh, it's a, it's a combination. Um, the, 
I test a lot. Um, most of the reason that I do is that I, um, if you were to look at my profile or the Consu Labs, which is the uh, organization that I, I have for all the crates that I've been creating, um, if you look at the list of that, it's massive. Um, I, I I have too many crates, and I don't think that if I had fewer, if I had a less strict uh, set of testing requirements, I hold myself to. Um, I don't think that I could maintain all those libraries. Um, there's there's something that is just so reassuring about knowing that your code um, is thoroughly tested. Now, what does thoroughly tested mean? That means a lot of different things to different people. Um, and that's usually where these, you know, my, my design decisions come from is how do I uh, write tests that um, are clear what they're doing that. Um, so, so like there's, there are ways to test a, a collection crate, you know, like, uh, you know, storing and getting things out that would just like randomly add and remove stuff, making sure that it doesn't ever break. Right. Like, um, but when you go to debug, when it does break, if you have to wait until iteration 3000, when the RNG, you know, generator produces this one seed, um, it's, it's hard to debug that problem. And so, uh, I, you know, I might start with something that's more automated, like a fuzzing type approach um, to testing something like that, just to make sure that I've kind of gotten the kinks out. But at the end of the day, um, I would rather uh, kind of look at the surface of my uh, program or my project or whatever library I'm working on um, and try to make sure that I've tested as much as I feel like needs to be tested. Some stuff is just simple pass-throughs. Um, the most recent crate that I released, um, the order map crate that uh, Kempt um, uh, doesn't have unit tests for some of the iterator definitions. And it's because underlying, they're just rewrap, it's wrapping a slice iterator under the hood. And so most of the functions are literally just self dot zero dot whatever the same function call was. And I could write unit tests for every single one of those to get my code coverage up, but it also just seems completely pointless. So I left you, those you'd uncovered. You'd be writing tests for the standard library basically and doing so. Exactly. Uh, and it just kind of seemed silly and overkill. Um, so, uh, so for that library, I focused on the rest of the code and I would use uh, cargo LLVM cov, which I'll link in the, uh, in the show notes, um, as a way to use LLVM's built in, uh, code coverage instrumentation features. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, that means that when I run this tool, I can get a nice HTML report that shows me line by line, what lines have been hit, how many times that line was hit. And with cargo LLVM cov, it actually shows you for each generic version of that function, which code paths were or weren't taken, which allows you to kind of be like, oh, well, I didn't actually test it with this generic. That might be a little overkill for a lot of situations because, you know, mostly you just care that at least some path on some generic invocation of a function um, was triggered because sometimes uh, you can't trigger it based on the generic. Anyways, that was a very abstract conversation. Um, uh, I do have... um, I'll start by doing just quick and dirty tests to answer your question. Um, and then once I notice that I've copy and pasted things a, a lot um, or several times, uh, I'll look into uh, uh, separating it out into its own little helper functions. Um, but that leads to another design question that I'll throw back at you after I explain what I do. Um, I tend to start by trying to write the unit test right next to the code that 
it, it affects um, or that I, that I'm testing because to me the the locality of the unit test is really nice to have like oh it's right right next to this function is the unit test that makes sure that it's working correctly that sounds great to me however sometimes unit tests need to bring in a bunch of uh, other things like use this other modules you know type or whatever and once I start having to add specific usings or um, or bring in different things um, where I would need to like start putting the use statements inside of the function body because otherwise I would get you know dead code warnings uh, when I compile for mm -hmm. release um, that's when I'll often move those tests into their own module whether it's a module just just later in the file that has its own mod you know curly brace braces or whether it's a separate file that just ends up being a question of how big the sets of tests are if it's only a few things then you know uh, I'll probably keep it in the same file but I'll you know split them out otherwise and eventually I'll probably even move some of them into their own like actual test.rs file but that apparently surprised someone uh recently when they're poking around at a library they're like you don't have a unit test I'm like, yeah i do it's like really covered <laughs> and then they 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 didn't know they they apparently always use uh the integration style test where you have a test folder inside of your uh inside of your repository so i'm curious oh, how do you organize my. your test um do you uh, put them all in one file do you do you litter them throughout like i do um what what do you do so there's there's this there's one very very strict rule when it comes to software development, right? We have a lot of quote unquote rules that you, of, of things you should and shouldn't do, but but these rules are are not as strict as this one strict rule. And the strict rule is the answer to any question whether you should or shouldn't do something is it depends, right? <laughs> and it's like that is the only rule that we can really follow when it comes to to these kind of these, these esoteric questions of how to how to organize things where there isn't really a right or wrong um, except if you one, one caveat to that though right if you place all your uh, testing in integration tests then you're gonna have to write specific code to test your private functions like how can you how can you test a private function in an integration test right you, you can mm -hmm. you can only test it by going through another function right um, so my take is I usually just, and, and I have uh, um, shortcuts, right? I have snippets for doing this. When I've written something, I just punch a few keys and it will generate a test module at the bottom of my file. And, um, and then I start writing tests in there. So I keep my tests and my unit tests in the usually in the same module as as the code that I'm testing, just for the reason that it's very easy to test private functions, right? When when you do it this way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so unless I misunderstood you, because there's the integration test where you're placing a test folder outside of your source folder, and right. and, and you, your tests are effectively a separate project. Is that what you meant? Uh, well, that's not what I do. I, I do that for no, very no, no, specific no, use cases. Um, that's what that right? person uh, apparently always did when they wrote their unit tests. And I can see an argument for doing that um, in some ways, but you're absolutely right. You know, that only allows you to test the public interface of your of your library or, or executable or whatever. Um, and so from that standpoint, um, I do I do like to test private functions a lot because um, sometimes they're where the, the meat of the logic is that <laughs> powers the entire crate, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I like the idea of having a shortcut that automatically puts something at the bottom of the file. I tend to try to put, if I have more than one test in a file that, you know, especially if there's multiple different functionality or whatever, I tend to put them all at the bottom because, uh, to me, the bottom is the best place for, uh, you know, those types of generic tests. The, 
if I'm testing just one function inside of a module and the unit test is only testing that function, I still put it right next to the function though. I don't, I don't put it at the bottom. But do you not write a separate test module then? Do you just... Not necessarily. Okay. It, it depends. Okay. If, if, I need a, if I need to make a helper function, like to, to abstract, you know, sharing stuff between multiple tests, then I'll create a module. Absolutely. Because um, at that point, it just saves a lot of the, you know, attribute test, you know, markers that you need to do or CFG test, uh, you know, filters type stuff. Um, so yeah, that helps a lot. Um, but you know, if I don't need extra usings or I don't need helper functions the, that are specific to testing, then I'll often not even put them in a module. This is one of those um, habits that I have developed that, it, that wouldn't even occur to me to not put the test in a test module. My, my, my muscle memory to just bang out this test module and the subsequent test is just there. I don't, um, I, I didn't even consider the fact that you could just you don't need a test module. You can just, as long as you have the the, the test attributes on a function, right? It's a, it's a test, right? Um, yeah. So that didn't even occur to me. Um, I have a friend uh, uh, who is uh, trying out Rust now, and 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 this this person is a Python developer by by day, and uh, now a sneaky Rust developer by night. But he is. Um, he he. So, so I moved from from Rust. I did a lot of Python before I did Rust, and and I remember thinking that testing in Rust was a little bit particular because there in in Python we had sort of the habit of developing separate test directories, and the tests were very separate from the code. And and this is what when when he asked me about testing, I, I sort of I held my breath for a bit, and I thought if I tell him about this, and we're gonna scare him away now, <laughs> but. Uh, I was like, you kind of interweave your tests with the rest of your code. You don't have these sort of neatly organized directories of unit tests. But then I quickly pointed out that you can omit a lot of the testing that you normally, well, as we normally write, because we used to work together, right? that we normally write because we, we have a type system that deals with that for us. So you don't have to write as many tests, right? Mm -hmm. But, but yes, yeah, so the testing, testing is one of those things that people feel very strongly about, right? And I'm going to come back to my, 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 my previous comment here that there is only one rule and that is it depends because people have asked me, uh, do I, do I do test driven development? Um, do I aim for a hundred percent test coverage? In the majority of, of, of cases, I'll say no, specifically for the reason that testing everything means you write a necessary test that is testing the uh, the um, the the standard library like you, like if you're checking something where you just written a wrap around something that, that that makes no sense like you're just adding test coverage for the sake of having test coverage right and I think mm -hmm. that that's kind of religious testing right you're not really you're not really thinking about what you're testing you can just go all right let's write a test and make sure if we got 100 test coverage nothing can ever go wrong which is a very dangerous mindset in some cases. Right? It's actually not true either. That's the fun part is that you can write bad tests that you think are testing things well because code coverage is getting hit, but you're not actually uh, testing the, the, the edge cases that really matter. Like you can have stuff that looks like it hits every line of code, but you're not testing the actual thresholds of that particular numerical comparison or something, right? Like, you know, or, or whatever it is that, uh, uh, makes it so that you know you might accidentally have an integer wrap or something like that, you know that sort of mm. stuff. Um, and so I think it's it, it, it's important when you're designing tests to 
really look and try to think about how your code could break, um, which means looking at each of those branching positions, you know, if statements, match statements, etc., and think, is there a way that this couldn't happen the way I'm expecting, you know, and um, and try to write tests that that really uh, test the extents of the function, not just the positive flows. Uh, but I always start with positive flow testing myself. Like that's the that's the way I start is you know making sure that the happy path is happy. Um, and then once I <laughs> once I once I'm happy with that, that's when I uh, start looking at coverage and saying, oh yeah, that really should be under coverage. Let's go let's go add a test for that. You know that sort of stuff. Yeah. Do 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 you have do you have any kind of uh do you have any any personal rules and thoughts around testing, right? So, so just to, to mention, like one of mine, if I'm doing, because you, you mentioned you did a, some work on on, a, on the collection and so on. When it comes to collections or algorithms or these kind of things, I, I try to think in terms of zero, one, many, right? I write the test for that, right? So, so many is just some arbitrary number, right? So this mm-hmm. is sort of a a little bit of a rule I have for myself. Again, we'll come back to the whole, you know, and I'm saying this because I get asked a lot of questions. I get I get asked a lot of questions from people on stream who wants to know what what are like what are my thoughts on this and what are my thoughts on that. And I always have to say the same thing. It depends, right? It, it depends. Mm-hmm. Like, why why are we doing this thing? What what's the point of this thing? Should I optimize this? Should I optimize that? And, and when it comes to optimization, my first question is: Did you benchmark it? Like, yeah. what do you what do you but are you sure that you're optimizing and if you do an optimization how do you know you improved it right because you have no previous but listen i'm gonna save some material for another podcast so i'm gonna back away <laughs> from that that one right um, because benchmarking is we can probably talk for for days about benchmarking what what they mean and sadly what they don't mean and and how people tend to read them as some yeah listen let's back away from that okay <laughs> So yeah. So what was your, what was your what's your thoughts? Do you have any sort of testing rules? If you if you're gonna tell new Rust developers how should they think about testing, right? Do you do you have any 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 thoughts there? To think about it. That's the first step. Like uh, when you when you write code without thinking about how to test it, you might end up with design decisions that make it really hard to test your code, and so. Even if you don't do test-driven development, I mean, you don't go and start, you know, writing a test for your function when you first declare your function of like how you expect the inputs and outputs to work, you know, even if you don't want to go that far, as long as you think about the idea that you will eventually want to test this function, um, it will help you in your design decision. Um, so I think that's the the biggest part to me is that uh, even though I don't, uh, I'm not like a religious uh, test-driven development practicer. Um, I, I would say that I am general I, in general follow test-driven development, um, but I will often not start with unit test. I'll start with what the problem is that I'm trying to solve, and then once I get to the point that I think I've roughly solved it, I'll go and start carving out a unit test or two for it. Um, but during that process, I'll have thought about how I will be able to test the the function um, because, you know, determining what goes in and out of the function can make a big difference of how easy it is to test. What about you? I, I don't really do the test first either. I have a very, I have a very sort of rough approach to development, right? It's X-driven development. I, I tend to, I tend to just um, throw out some code there and and sort of start chopping away at it until it starts to make sense, right? So sometimes my code is almost 
like writing down an ID. Uh, but instead of just writing pseudocode, I actually go and implement something uh, just so I can take a step back and observe it. And a lot of the times I will implement something and then throw it away and mm-hmm. then go and implement it again. Obviously not in the same way because that would be lunacy, uh, although <laughs> that happens, but I would, I would implement it in a sort of a different way where I take away all the, all the um, kind of... Um, the, the stream of consciousness programming, right? So I tried to mention this, uh, the other podcast, I, I think I used the word linear, but I, I meant stream of consciousness, right? So, so you kind of just, you just kind of bolting code upon code upon code, right? Until you have this kind of weird hacking monstrosity. But if you take a step back, you can sort of describe your code to someone in, in, in a couple of sentences. And then you, you translate that into code again. So you take your, uh, your unnecessary loops and all that stuff. And then you kind of just fold this in into something that's neat. And then I write tests around this thing, right? Uh, and that sounded a lot more profound than it was supposed to be. But I, I, I really, I really do write. The, the takeaway from, from my comment is I do write terrible code and then I try to make it less terrible. And then I make sure I test it, right? That's my, that's my approach. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the challenges, uh, I mean, I mean, when we think about the idea of testing a single function, the um, it depends questions start getting a little bit, you know, you can be more opinionated about it, right? But when you're talking about just like trying to solve a big problem, like I need, you know, that it's kind of nebulous, you know, the the rough, like styling you, the user interface, right? Um, like some really big problem <laughs> like that. I have no idea how to write unit tests for a style sheet system that I haven't written yet, right? So to some extent, you sometimes need to have you need to understand the shape of things before you can start writing those tests and that's why um in in my opinion i i don't i'm not a perfect uh, test driven development pr- practitioner is because i i do carve out the shape of things a lot before i start writing the unit test um you know it's it's only once i get to the point that the compiler is compiling things <laughs> that i usually start writing unit tests ah yes uh, no, I think I think that, but that that makes sense. Uh, you, but you said you you can have opinions. Thing. You you can, and and if you have ever visited the interwebs, you know that there's a lot of opinions. But you also know that the moment you have a strong opinion about something, people like to take that and and then just go with that and say, okay, this is now a rule. Which is why I'm very careful um, with my strong opinion. And I think this this is probably more relevant to me who talk a lot to people who are either starting out with programming or starting out with Rust or whatever. And I feel like if you if you have a strong opinion about something, I, I, I've heard, it wasn't long ago, I heard, well, it was quite some time ago, but I heard someone um, saying that they didn't, they, they didn't want, um, they, they, someone they work with didn't want them to use else statements. And, and like, I kind of, and, and I thought, what? But uh, what, sorry, what? My, my, I mean, it is like, and, and, and of course, there is, there is, a, there is a myriads of videos on the on, on YouTube telling you um, how to write code L statements and all that stuff, right? But this is like one of those things. I, I, I don't care enough that, yeah. that this this shouldn't even be a thing. Uh, and more importantly, why would you make such an opinion as a thing into a rule for yourself? Which is why I'm a little bit, I'm very cautious when it comes to, to these things. I do have a lot of, I have very strong opinions, right? About a lot of things, but I, I am very reserved when it comes to sharing them because I don't want, I don't want anyone to listen to this and say, I don't, I'm not going to bother trying this out. I'm just going to take this random internet person who clearly doesn't know 
how to write code because what he just described, right? And we're going to take his opinion as a kind of a fact. And then I'm going to go off and tell everyone else not to use else statements or some other preposterous thing, right? See, now I'm having strong opinions, right? There we go. <laughs> you, you got a strong opinion out of me. Okay. It, it, my, my opinion is this, right? You should definitely use else statements. They are 100, they are, they are language features, right? It's keywords. Right there, you can use an else statement. There's no reason not to, right? So, sorry, okay, I couldn't, I, I latched on that, so I shouldn't know. But, but yeah, so that's why I do obviously have a lot of strong opinions, right? Yeah, and I think, I think the opinions are totally fine to have. It's, it's, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of strong opinions too, but I try to keep an open mind um, because I know that I'm not the best programmer out there. And um, I think that's one of the things that I always, when I was trying to hire developers when I was running my last team, um, I always valued the um, desire to learn is the way that I looked at it. You know, as long as uh, it's okay to think that you're a good developer. I think I'm a good developer. I feel like I'm, you know, up there if you were to rank people in terms of how good a developer are. I know I'm not the top developer, right? Um, but I know that I'm kind of above average, I would call, you know? Um, and I, I think it's okay to have that feeling as long as you're, open to recognizing when you're wrong about something, you know, and I am totally happy to be corrected when I'm wrong about something. And uh, I mean, even the topic of, of how to organize tests, I think I changed my behavior about a year ago after a discussion with, uh, with various people on a coworking channel. Like, um, you know, I, at the, I, I used to put all of my tests in a test module, um, you know, whether it was in the file or a separate module file, uh, it doesn't really matter to me, but I always put them in a separate module. And then one day they're like why are you doing that you don't need to do that do you i'm like I, I guess i don't you know and and i started you know doing that a little less until you know i had good reasons for it essentially right um so yeah, I think it's okay to have opinions. I think that everyone should just keep an open mind, though. And uh, you know, every situation is different. Sometimes I, I will not, like ninety percent of the time, I might do something one way, but you run into a certain situation in your code, it might make sense to do it a different way, you know. And and you just kind of have to be flexible sometimes as a programmer. So I don't know. I, th um, I think you, I think you always have to be flexible as a programmer because <laughs> yeah. otherwise, otherwise you, you, you're going to end up in a very dangerous situation, right? So there is, there is, uh, I'm going to mention this briefly, right? Cause there is a very dangerous situation to exist in as a programmer. I think the most dangerous thing that can happen to a programmer is that they find themselves in a company, maybe a startup. They are the only programmer there. And they never get a chance to take some time and program for fun. So they're kind of stuck driving a product or two forward all the time. So they kind of develop this mentality that they are always right because they're writing the code, right? I think, I, I don't know if you, if you know what I mean, but this is a mm -hmm. very dangerous position to be in as a developer because I think you can, you can start to fool yourself that you are the only developer out there. And so, so you, what you know is is the, like the final truth, right? I think that's that's a very dangerous position to be in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it absolutely. Uh, can but be. you you mentioned you mentioned that you used to write tests inside test modules and then you moved them out, and 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 uh, I, I think that's uh, that's uh, that's so so that's different from what I'm doing, right? Because I do I do the test module, and as I mentioned earlier, right, I don't even know why. I, I, it's just I picked this up probably from Barry Rust, right? That was the only reason why I uh, was doing it was uh, like it just seemed like the thing to do, and I'd never asked myself why am I doing it, and it was that conversation on the co-working channel that uh, 
that made me realize that I didn't have a good reason for it. And as I started thinking about it, I realized that the times that I would actually want a module were the things we kind of talked about already, like needing using statements or having shared, you know, functionality in a, in a test function or whatever, you know, um, there are good reasons to do modules. And then there are other times where it's like, yeah, there's really no reason to put the functions in there. It's serving no purpose except to add a layer in the namespacing. <laughs> like, uh, but what what about expectations, right? Because that is that is yes. of course important, right? We have uh, we have design patterns and all these things because then we can talk abstractly about it. So you can, if you say to someone, go and go and look at the tests, and and I'm, mm-hmm. of course I'm I'm guessing you put a lot of your tests at the bottom of the file, maybe. I mean, but but that's what people would expect them to be, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a, a key thing is that I still mentioned that I have some tests that are right next to the function that they're written for, um, which is makes them harder to find. Um, that being said, when you run cargo test, you get the full namespaced uh, uh, like path to the to the to the function that's being tested. Um, so to some extent, you should be able to see that and be able to find exactly where it's at in the file. Not that big of a deal. Um, but I agree that like half of the battle of open source development is uh, trying to make your code uh, easier to digest by potentially other contributors, but also people who might want to use your library and they're just trying to see how good is the code behind it, Um, which segues pretty nicely to one of our next topics. Um, uh, Last episode, you briefly mentioned that uh, evaluating uh, like how we might evaluate a crate could be an interesting topic, but then we didn't dig into it. And I thought that could be a fun topic to dig into. Um, so like, uh, let's say that you are looking for, and I already know that we probably both know a good CSV library, but let's say that you don't know how to parse a CSV file in Rust. You don't know existing crates out there. Uh, you just know that you need to parse a CSV file. How do you go about finding a crate and, um, evaluating whether or not the crate you found, uh, is something you want to rely on in your project? Now, I have a very, I think, I think my approach isn't unique. I think I do what a lot of people do. I go on to crates.io and then I type in CSV and then I look at the total number of downloads. <laughs> uh, and then I go and look at the, the, the GitHub URL a little bit, right? But if, if we're really talking about, um, Sort of, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some CSV parsing because I, I need to organize my, my spreadsheet of calorie intake or whatever it is, or, or you know, the, the something you put in spreadsheets, right? And, and I'm gonna do that, uh, or in, in a CSV, right? And, and, and I'm gonna do that. Then, then this is, this is a, a sufficient enough approach for me, right? But then, if I'm going to really evaluate a crate. Then I will clone that directory. And the first place, for some reason, the first place I go and look is in the cargo tumult to see what dependencies they have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is normally to see if they're depending on something that I might think of as uh, a, a crate that is not doing what I want to do, or maybe they're depending on a crate that I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding on purpose for one reason or other. Um, might just be like it might be that the crate has uh, a bug or or an issue or or whatever it is, right? Or or maybe I know that this crate's going to pull in a lot of dependencies that I don't want or some other reason. So for some reason, I always start in cargo tumble when it comes to evaluating crates, right? Um, and and then do that. But I, I never do 
any well okay i was about to tell a fib i was gonna say i never do any any benchmarking but i i remember i spent a, a, a good portion of a stream benchmarking the, and I'm, I'm sure every i'm sure everyone every rust developer will at some point do this benchmark a whole bunch of different hashing libraries right for hash map to know which one to use have you done this have you benchmarked hash maps no uh well yes you and no okay not not really i mostly just trusted uh uh, and this is something you shouldn't do with benchmarks. Um, I mostly just trusted other people's numbers that have been published um, because uh, to me, hashing algorithms are fairly standardized. There's uh, so, you know, I, I think that one of the more popular uh, open source ones that we uh, have for Rust that's uh, not in the standard library is the F and V crate. Um, and I, I can't remember what it actually stands for, but um, the uh, uh, it's a, it's a well-known uh uh, hashing algorithm that's not cryptographic that's nice and fast for and it's uh, pretty good for what they described as small inputs um, and uh, you know different algorithms have different benefits and yeah at the end of the day I, I know that I could arbitrarily test um, a set of inputs that I might think might be representative of how the app is being used but at the end of the day the end user's data is what's probably going to get hashed and it's maybe hard to predict that. And so uh, which algorithm is probably optimization, you know, premature optimization on most cases, honestly, most of the hash maps and stuff that I use don't even change the standard library hasher away. Um, when you say the standard library, do, do you mean like they're the random state, the, the, you know, how the D you, you can override the hasher on a hash set and hash map, um, to, to use a different hasher, a hashing algorithm. Um, I, uh, most of the time I don't, um, cause it's, it's good enough. It's fast enough. Um, you, it has to be very performance sensitive code for it to matter. No, that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. Right. I do. I, I, I like when, um, when there's a third party hashing library or hash map that allows me to just alias the uh, the hash map because it makes it very yes. easy to to evaluate these we things. We got a little distracted on the on the on the subject of uh, benchmarking uh you know as a as a potential thing we do uh while evaluating crates. Um so I I will sometimes benchmark a crate but it's only specifically if I'm looking for a crate for its performance reasons, right? Um, uh, otherwise, I'm mostly looking um, for other criteria, but I, I don't want to keep, I don't want to interrupt your your flow there. So uh, you sometimes benchmark. Is there any other things that you might do while evaluating a crate? It is is rarely that I would benchmark, but normally I do that. And then I go in and, and of course, look at the documentation, like the cargo doc, um, dash dash open, because I'm lazy. And then I will, of course, start poking at the, at the code, right? So I will, I will, pop open the libars file and and sort of look in there and you know what really what really makes me happy when i go to evaluate the crate if i see that there are very few files in there because it means <laughs> i don't have to i don't have to sort of juggle a lot i can just sort of read the the file and even better is if they've written the the program in this kind of execution flow starting from top to bottom right or they've written the library then i can just sort of follow this uh, around and see what's going on there and I kind of I tend to look for a few details in there where, where they matter, though, right? So, so for instance, uh, is this library doing a lot of allocations, right? Are we using string when we could use string size? These kind of things. Um, and and sometimes I look at something and I think, well, you know what? Um, 
I, I could I could do this more effectively and 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 better performance myself. And then I will start to implement it and then realize that the reason they did the allocation was because they actually had to. And then I throw my code away. But now I thoroughly evaluated. <laughs> They're creating the process, right? So, yeah. so that's kind of that's a little bit what, what about what about your approach, right? How do you how do you um, evaluate? It starts very similarly. Um, so I start with crates IO usually. Um, I will say that LibRS has slightly better search in some situations. So sometimes if I don't find something that matches what I'm looking for um, on crates IO directly, I'll go to LibRS and do the same search um but you know once i found a potential crate so i'm opening up the crate detail page um on librs and on crates io the dependencies are listed right there including whether or not they require feature flags to enable um, and i too think that that's a great indicator because sometimes there's a there like I don't remember what crate it was recently. I wouldn't have named it anyways because I don't like criticizing things publicly like this. But um, I ran across a crate um, that uh, had a base64 dependency that I was like, why, why does it have a base64 dependency? <laughs> this problem that it's solving doesn't require base64 in any way that I can think of. And it turns out that they had um, were using it as part of like a serialization thing, which you know is, is whatever, fine. Um, but uh, you know, to, to me, that was a uh, potentially red herring, uh, or not? Well, it was a red herring because I, I was okay with that in the end. Um, but uh, it was a potential. Uh, problem uh where you know why why would this crate need to do that sort of thing um but you know i not only looking at the dependencies i will uh look at the recent downloads in addition to the all-time downloads because some of the older crates out there have uh fallen you know down on usage um and so if you see the 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 trend graph on crates io going downwards um I, that that to me makes me think that maybe there's another alternative i should be looking for that people are switching to um for whatever reason and so i might start searching more too. Um, if a crate hasn't been updated in a long time, like more than a year, I will go to its GitHub repository and see if it, uh, if at least the main branch has been touched more recently than because there's good reasons that crates don't have releases all the time. Like if they're essentially a 1.0, but they just haven't named it 1.0, there may not have much left to do with the development of the crate. It may be in kind of a final form and the authors just aren't ready to call it 1.0, or maybe they stop maintaining it, but it's, perfect it's done you know they just never labeled it 1.0 you know um so it's totally fine for a stale crate to be stale right um well this this is rust so we don't do 1.0 okay it's very yeah, important exactly. to know this we don't do 1.0 okay there are libraries that are seven years old that, that are still not 1.0 even though the api yeah. doesn't change right um but it, I, I understand why i understand why yeah. right? uh, but then unlike you instead of cloning the next step for me is to actually just go straight to docs rs um i i don't know why i would generate the docs myself when it's right there so uh, you said you were being lazy to look at the docs i to me the ultimate form of lazy is just clicking on the docs rs link from crates io and looking at it first there uh before i even get to the clone i i i want to see what the surface of the api looks like because if it's not if it doesn't look like an api that i want to use i'm going to go to another crate right away because uh the usability of the, the thing i'm about to use is really important to me because if i can't make my code look good or make if it's not going to be easy to make my code uh, understandable for my future self uh, i'll pick a more ergonomic solution even if it's not quite as performant in some cir circumstances so i don't know i i prefer code legibility over raw performance all the time well almost all the time unless it absolutely matters 
I well, that's a that's a that's a good one. I think I think we can enrage half the internet with that conversation. So you <laughs> yes, know what? Totally. If you're listening to this, you're gonna have to tune in for our next episode where we talk about whether you should sacrifice performance for legibility, right? <laughs> but in this episode, we shan't touch on that, right? Um, well, I think I think that the, the I you know I well I, I have one last thing that I wanted to talk about with with crazy oh, sorry. Thing, but I agree I we, just are, ran we are over, over that time. One, sorry. Uh, but the uh, the um, unsafe code. Um, if a library has forbid unsafe, um, to me it's a it's it's much more likely for me to adopt it than a crate that doesn't have forbid unsafe. Um, now, if they don't have forbid unsafe and they don't use unsafe, that's also okay too, right? Um, but if there's actual unsafe code in there. Um, I have to trust that it's been audited well. Do you try to audit yourself? Well, I know I don't trust. I know I don't. I don't trust myself auditing other people's unsafe code because uh, the uh, guarantees that need to be upheld are um, are hard to at a surface just understand um you know tools like miri help a lot in in checking your own you know uh, whether you upheld the 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 aliasing rules that you need to and that sort of stuff um i don't trust myself to look at other people's code and say oh yeah that looks uh, like it's invalid unsafe versus valid unsafe um so i would prefer to avoid crates uh, that have unsafe at all um and that's just my own personal opinion but there are some really wonderful battle tested crates out there that have unsafe in them and that's totally fine it's just that if i haven't heard of that crate out there before um, and i don't know that it's being used by a lot of people and i don't know the maintainers from a reputation standpoint i mean um i'm going to be less likely to trust the unsafe code uh, and try to find a library that does no unsafe that's one of the reasons why i tend to like to write um extra libraries that have versions out there that are unsafe but don't actually use unsafe so my kempt object map thing uh that i created um yeah there's other ordered vector map type crates out there but a lot of them use unsafe and uh speaking of benchmarking when i benchmarked i wasn't able to really shave off uh, hardly any performance using unsafe so i left it out of the crate so anyways that was uh that's kind of the end of my crate evaluation um we had remaining topics but i know that we're at our time would you like to call it here and save them for the next episode I think we should do that. I've even made notes. Um, so yes, I, I think I think that's probably all that we have for today. I am gonna go and have a cup of tea and deal with my ear infection, and and hopefully uh, it did not come across in this podcast that I'm not feeling super good. But um, thank you I all think for listening, did. and uh, I, I hope I hope so. Right? I'm I'm I'm, I'm this, with all with no camera, life is so much easier. Okay, I can't stream exactly. this because people will call. The ambience. But uh, <laughs> now, now this wonderful show has come to an end. So I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you feel better and everyone have a wonderful week. <laughs>